0: So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Welcome to the podcast. Psychiatrist Anna Lemke is the Director of Addiction and Medicine at Stanford University and the Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. And I am so excited to have her on the show today to talk about her new book, Dopamine Nation. In the book, Anna explores the interconnection of pleasure and pain in the brain and helps explain addictive behaviors, not just to alcohol and drugs, but also to food, sex, smartphones, and a lot more. In Dopamine Nation, Dr. Lemke explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a world where feeling good is mistaken as the highest good. And I have to say that when I was going through this book, I first got it on Audible and I kept like pulling over my car to write down notes in my Google Doc, because in the way this book is written, it explained so many things that I sort of knew were true, but I didn't know why they were true, both in terms of sort of withdrawal and how we feel and dopamine and how it impacts the brain. So I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Lemke. I also just wanted to note that in 2016, She published Drug Dealer MD, which is about how doctors were duped and patients got hooked and why it's so hard to stop. And Dr. Lemke was also on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. So I know that's going to be a really interesting conversation, too. So Anna, welcome. I am so glad you're here.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about dopamine to start, which is sort of the premise of the book, how it works and how addictive it is.
1: Yeah. So dopamine is a chemical in our brain. It's a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are the chemicals that bridge the gap from one neuron to the other. So neurons are the main brain cells And they work by conducting an electrical impulse and create circuits that allow us to have thoughts and emotions. But those neurons don't touch. There's a little gap between them. And that that gap or that space is called the synapse. And neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge that gap and allow one neuron to communicate to the next neuron. And dopamine is one of those neurotransmitters, along with serotonin, norepinephrine, and others. So so dopamine is the molecule in the brain that is the most important neurotransmitter in the experience of motivation and reward as well as the experience of pleasure all of those things bundled together. Okay, that's super interesting. So what made you want to write this book? I wanted to write this book in order to give people a framework for understanding their everyday behaviors and to be able to get a handle on those behaviors and live in a way that was ultimately healthier and more meaningful for them. I also wanted to point out something important about modern life, which is that we have all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction because we're surrounded by so many highly rewarding, high dopamine drugs and behaviors. Almost every behavior and substance now has become drugified in one way or another um, which is why we're so many of us are caught up in, in these addictive loops.
0: And so you're constantly getting this pleasure hit and then going through withdrawal from it. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so that's exactly right. That's the premise of dopamine nation that, you know, we're seeing rising rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide all over the world, but especially in rich nations like the United States. And it's really a puzzle, you know, why is it in this time of incredible abundance, um, in this time of social safety nets, they're not perfect, but they have better than they've ever been before, you know, in this time in which we've eradicated so many diseases that used to kill us at age 30, why it is that we're all more unhappy. And the hypothesis that I put forward in the book is essentially that it's the constant bombardment by dopamine of our reward pathways, that is leading us to be more anxious, more depressed, more irritable. Um, and I talk about the neuroscience of, the, of pleasure and pain in the brain as a framework for understanding how, how it is that the relentless pursuit of pleasure ultimately leads to pain.
0: Yeah. And is that because of the withdrawal from the sort of high levels of pleasure or because of something else?
1: I think the best way to understand it is um, through this extended metaphor of the balance that I talk about in the book. So one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years or so is that pleasure and pain are co-located, which means the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and pleasure and pain work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine a balance in your brain, like a board centered on a fulcrum, kind of like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. What happens is that when we do something reinforcing like watch a YouTube video or eat a piece of chocolate or get an uplifting message, text message from a friend, we get a little tip of pleasure, a little tip of uh, our balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure, and we get a little release of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway. But one of the overarching rules governing this pleasure pain balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And the brain will work very hard to restore a level balance, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And the way that the brain restores homeostasis is by tipping that balance an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain before becoming level again. And that's really, really important to understanding this phenomenon, because what it means is that every pleasurable experience is followed by an equal and opposite experience of pain. So for example, if I eat a piece of chocolate, almost immediately after I've eaten it, I have an urge to eat another one. And it's very subtle. I may not even really be that consciously aware of it. That's that pleasure pain balance that was briefly tipped to the side of pleasure and now is tipped to the side of pain. If I wait long enough, that urge to eat a second piece of chocolate passes and my balance is restored. But if I don't wait and I have another piece of chocolate and another and another and another, what happens is that I essentially change my brain over time. I downregulate my own dopamine receptors. I downregulate my own dopamine transmission all as a way to accommodate the surges in dopamine that I'm getting from all of the chocolate that I'm eating. And you can replace chocolate with any number of rewarding substances or behaviors from alcohol to cannabis, to gambling, to pornography, to video games, you name it. One of the ways I imagine this process is to think about these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of my balance to bring it level again, but the gremlins like it on the balance. So they don't get off right when it's level, they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, and then they get off and balance is restored. But again, if I continue to consume over days to weeks to months, I ultimately end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of my balance that I've changed my hedonic or joy set point. So now when I'm not eating chocolate, my balance is tipped to the side of pain. And I'm experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Furthermore, when I do use my drug of choice, I really don't get euphoric on it anymore because I've developed a tolerance to it. And now I need it just to level the balance and feel normal. And then thirdly, and really importantly, other pleasures have become less pleasurable to me. So my balance and my brain have become narrowed down to focusing just on this one pleasure because I've got a a pleasure pain balance tipped to the side of pain. So now, you know, a nice um, dinner with friends that doesn't include alcohol or chocolate or whatever it is, is no longer pleasurable for me.
0: Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. That makes so much sense to me because, I mean, it's something that I observed in myself. So I actually quit drinking about five and a half years ago. And before that, I was absolutely the bottle of wine a night girl, like 365 nights a year would just come home from work, cook dinner for my kids, open the bottle of wine, drink it, sometimes want more, and then wake up feeling like garbage saying I was never gonna, you know, I'm going to take a break. I'm not drinking tonight. I can't feel this way. And by 6pm, I was doing every single rationalization to make it okay to just, you know, this is my only reward. I can't relax. My life is so hard. It's my favorite treat kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because that just really perfectly captures this pleasure pain balance at work and what happens when the gremlins have become camped out on the pain side of the balance. Physiologic drive then to drink alcohol is enormous and it essentially hijacks our ability to see true consequences. So if one of the interesting things that we find in addiction is that When things are working well in our brains, then our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain right behind the forehead, it's sort of our big gray matter brain, and which is also the storytelling part of our brain and the future consequences part of our brain. That is well connected with the deeper limbic areas, including the reward pathway of the brain. So we're able to use that prefrontal cortex to moderate and modulate our urges, our desires, our pleasure pain balance. But what happens in the process of addiction, in addition to those gremlins camping out on the pain side of the balance, is that we essentially lose the communication between the prefrontal cortex and the lower brainstem areas, including the reward pathway. So we can no longer see cause and effect. So we have this incredible physiologic urge to drink in order to restore level balance. And we're telling all kinds of you know, fake stories to ourselves about why that's okay, why it makes sense, why it's not that bad.
0: Yeah. So it wasn't just my imagination that wine was truly my favorite thing in the world. It, I had just rewired my pleasure center with like that constant hit of dopamine where it truly was
1: my favorite thing. Is that right? That's exactly right. You put it very well. And the way to understand this is that our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasure and avoid pain. Mother nature made this pleasure pain balance so that we would do that relentlessly so that we would be relentless seekers, which is highly adaptive in a world of scarcity and ever present danger, but is maladaptive in a world of, you know, ubiquitous overabundance. So you're absolutely right. What what happened in your brain is that your brain confused alcohol with food, clothing, and shelter. For you, it became an absolute physiologic imperative um, to drink more alcohol. And your brain did that to you by again changing your pleasure pain set point and tipping your brain chronically to the side of pain such that you had an overwhelming urge to drink just to restore homeostasis. And remember, restoring homeostasis is one of the fundamental re-regulating drives of the human brain and really of all organisms. We have got to get back to homeostasis. So so that's the insidious loop that happens in the process of um, getting addicted.
0: And so, I mean, what you talked about in terms of irritability You know, not feeling happy, um, everything else. Like I kept trying to take a break, quote unquote, right? To not drink. And I would typically make it like three to four days before I'd be like, that's it. I need a bottle of wine. And I would, you know, I did that for a while when I was really serious about cutting back. I would go four days, drink, four days, drink. And I would tell myself, like, well, two bottles of wine a week is way better than seven or eight. When I was doing that the whole time, my brain was like, just trying my and my body to get me back out of that pain cycle. Is that right?
1: Right. So the, the thing about the, you know, neuroadaptation and those changes that are wrought in the brain with heavy, sustained consumption of drugs like alcohol, is that It can take quite a while for the brain to readapt after stopping drinking. And in my experience, it takes a minimum of 30 days of not drinking to really heal the brain and start for those gremlins to hop off the pain side and for homeostasis to be restored. So if you went four days, um, you know, I suspect that you just didn't make it long enough to restore homeostasis. And at four days, you were probably at the peak level of those gremlins jumping up and down, you know, on the pain side of the balance saying, give me more alcohol, um, just, you know, so that you could be relieved of the psychological pain and suffering of protracted withdrawal, which doesn't necessarily manifest as the shakes or, you know, autonomic dysfunction, elevated blood pressure, heart rate, The universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, whether it's a smartphone or alcohol, um, the universal symptoms are again anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive rationalizations for why it's okay to use, even though we set a different goal for ourselves.
0: So, in the book, you talk about a patient, Delilah, who smokes pot every day. And the reason she smokes pot is her anxiety. She talks about how the very first thing she feels in the morning is anxiety. And I hear that from so many women who I work with and who write to me who are saying, I drink because of my anxiety. I just can't take it anymore. And you mentioned 30 days. I, When I work with women one-on-one, my goal is to get them to 100 days without alcohol they feel better at 30 days, but often the whole last two weeks, they're just counting down to when they can drink again as like a reset. But you talk about Delilah and talking to her about trying the experiment of 30 days without smoking pot, because you suspect that what felt like cannabis treating anxiety was actually the cannabis relieving the withdrawal, like the Cause of the anxiety was the pot, not the cure.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and let me just um, say that what I encounter in my cl- clinical practice is, is really similar to what you encounter: patients presenting, wanting help with anxiety and depression and insomnia, and hoping I will prescribe them a pill or come up with some sort of magic. Uh, you know, psychotherapeutic wisdom. And instead, the first thing I often ask them to do is to give up their drug of choice for 30 days. And I also agree with you that 30 days is sort of just barely the beginnings. And of course, 90 days really allows more substantial healing to occur. And in some some cases, it takes even longer than that. But for about 80% of patients, that 30 days is enough to feel the benefits of not drinking and to get out of that vicious loop of constant intrusive craving. Um, so, So in order to understand this subjective phenomenon that, oh, the alcohol is relieving my depression, anxiety, again, visualize the balance, right? And imagine that with alcohol on the pleasure side repeated over days to weeks to months to years, you've got a million gremlins now on your pain side. You've downregulated your own dopamine production and your own dopamine receptors so that when you stop drinking, the very first thing that happens is that balance slams to the side of pain and it will stay there for at least 30 days. In my experience, those gremlins are hopping hardest in those first two weeks. And then come week three and four, they start to dismount and get off. But in the meantime, of course, if you drink, you will feel better, right? Because it will temporarily relieve the problem of the balance tip of the side of pain and bring your balance level again. You probably won't feel good because you're long past really the alcohol working anymore in the way that it used to, but um, you may get out of this horrible dysphoria that is the balance tip of the side of pain. So subjectively, it feels like the alcohol is relieving the depression, but really what it's doing is accumulating more and more gremlins on the pain side and driving the depression. And once my patients understand that, it helps them get through those first couple of weeks because they can tell themselves, okay, I'm feeling bad, but it's time limited. It's the gremlins on the pain side of my balance. If I just wait long enough, they will get off and I'll get to a place where I'm feeling better. And again, about 80% of my patients who do this 30-day experiment uh, do feel better at three or four weeks.
0: And so if you drink during that really tough period, you are just redoing the absolute worst part over and over and over again.
1: That's right. You're just, again, priming the brain for more gremlins, to hop onto the balance. You're just delaying uh, the ability, your brain's ability to heal. Remember, what we want to do is for the brain to start to regenerate its own inner endogenous dopamine and dopamine receptors, but it's not going to be able to do that as long as you're ingesting a substance like alcohol, which releases so much dopamine in the brain's reward pathway.
0: When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code, hello, and get ready to sleep well. Yeah. And you talk about in the book, how Delilah came back after 30 days with glowing skin and a radiant smile and said that she felt so much better. Like the anxiety was so much less than before. She had a clear head, her paranoia, And suspiciousness was gone, she was saving money, she was enjoying events more sober, and she hadn't gone without pot in years and years and years. So had no idea that the reason she was feeling so bad was because of the substance she was using to make her feel better.
1: That's exactly right. And Delilah is not an isolated example of a case that turned out well that I hear that and have heard it again and again over so many years, which is really why I wrote the book. I want people to understand what, you know, what I get to see so often in clinical practice, that what feels like it's treating the underlying depression, anxiety is actually medicating withdrawal. It's actually a balance tip to the side of pain. And if we can just abstain for long enough, we can reassert homeostasis and start to regenerate our own dopamine and opioids and serotonin and all that good stuff that makes us naturally feel good. Um, One of the things that is also fascinating about this experiment in my clinical practice is again, how surprised people are when they come back, because subjectively, it just feels so much like The depression and anxiety are separate things, and the alcohol is just an escape from psychiatric symptoms. And then, when they stop and they see their depression and anxiety resolve without any other treatment, it's a big aha moment for people. And it's then a huge motivator to try to maintain those gains.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I thought that was interesting, and I absolutely remembered that in myself. So, for years. And honestly, I was completely oblivious. And that's why I love this book. I want to send it to all the women I know who struggle with alcohol, because I would go to my therapist and say, you know, I have a really stressful job, uh, my son, my marriage, XYZ. I wake up at 3am, which I said, I have insomnia, which now, of course, I know is related to alcohol withdrawal, yes. and is pretty universal to people yes. who drink a lot. I said, I wake up at 3 a.m. I have insomnia. I'm incredibly anxious. And of course, I got put on an anti anxiety med and Ambien, which still drinking a bottle a night, completely dangerous, incredibly dangerous. And I never told my therapist how much I was drinking. I gave this sort of universal, oh, I drink a couple times a week, a couple drinks a night kind of thing. Yes. And that was a good decade before I realized what the issue was.
1: Wow. Yeah. You know, this always makes me sad to hear this because there's so much ignorance in the medical profession when it comes to the problem of addiction and so so many misconceptions, including a general lack of knowledge and awareness about the addictive potential of the medications that we prescribe, including things like Ambien, Valium, Clonopin, Ativan, uh, which are basically alcohol in pill form. So, um, and and I just want to say, and I'm not above that ignorance. I myself was extremely ignorant about addiction when I graduated from medical school. And even when I finished my psychiatry residency, I didn't really know much about addiction, didn't want to treat it. It was really my patients who taught me. Um, about addiction and I've come a long way since then. So really hoping to influence my colleagues as well in their practice. And I've talked to a
0: number of women who have finally gone to their doctor or their therapist and said, I'm really worried about my drinking, and have been told it's not a big deal, just cut back, you're fine, you aren't quote unquote an alcoholic kind of thing. Like You're okay. And I, I think that's both not understanding and also like, in society, we all drink. So they probably have bought into, you know, the idea that this that alcohol is sort of innocuous and not a big deal. And, you know, you can handle it just cut back.
1: Yeah, it's really unfortunate because, you know, instead of doing the primary intervention of cutting back or eliminating, you know, a potent drug like alcohol, what we often do in the medical profession is minimize, normalize, and then pile on other drugs to correct the symptoms caused by the alcohol. And that's really unfortunate. And and it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting for me to just look back at how my own practice has changed in the last 25 years. And how the first thing I would have done 20 or 25 years ago was to prescribe an antidepressant and maybe even an anxiolytic and maybe even a sleep aid. And now I spend most of my career helping patients get off of those drugs. And the first thing that I recommend most of the time is a dopamine fast and not just for people using alcohol, also for people who are on their smartphones too much or people playing video games or you know people who are workaholics i mean whatever you know your dopamine is um it's so important to eliminate it for a period of time to reset the balance and to be able to see true cause and effect and what the true impact of that behavior is on your life yeah you also talk about which i know i did that
0: um patients who are struggling with substance abuse believe their addictions are fueled by depression anxiety and insomnia and you Talk about a patient in particular, David, who attributed his fatigue, his inattentiveness to mental illness rather than sleep deprivation and overstim- overstimulation, right? And then used that
1: to justify his use of pills. Right, exactly. So I see that so often, you know, where people are not practicing basic wellness. They're not getting enough sleep they're not getting exercise they're not eating right they're working too hard and then they're surprised that they're tired anxious and depressed and I just think you know if, if I had to do what you do every day I too would be tired anxious yeah. and depressed. Our, our bodies have limits right we can't expect our bodies to go beyond you know what is our normal human limits. Um, We all have to make sure that we get enough sleep and that we make time for exercise, especially given how sedentary most of our jobs are now. Um, You know, we have to make sure we don't have too much stress in our lives to the extent that we can control that. And everybody's level is different. You know, some people can tolerate more stress than others. We have to learn to know ourselves and what our own limits are, but instead what people are doing is using substances, taking pills, Using all kinds of compensatory, unhealthy behaviors to compensate for um, a lifestyle that is fundamentally unhealthy.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that, so it's sort of like self care, especially in that first 30 days, is really important because you're not imagining that you're, you know, if you're drinking, you haven't had a good night's sleep sometimes in years. Um, You probably are overworked, overscheduled, stressed out. You're definitely anxious just by virtue of what you were talking about with the pleasure pain balance. So, you know, really digging into self care and sort of we talk about just bubbling up and lowering the bar is really important.
1: Yeah. I always warn patients when they take this experiment on that they're going to feel worse before they feel better. And they should conceptualize it like having the flu. They're going to feel potentially really, really sick. Now, one caveat to all this is this is a person who's at risk for life-threatening alcohol withdrawal. Obviously I would not recommend the experiment of just stopping. Uh, Those are individuals that need a medically monitored detoxification, but barring that, um, possibility. Uh, what I warn people of is, you know, you may need to take a couple weeks off work. You certainly want to let your loved ones know what you're doing and that you're going to feel really ill. Um, if it goes better than that, great. But I, I want to paint like the worst case scenario for patients because it is a front burner problem. It's yeah. not something that they can sort of do, you know, on the back burner while they're still, uh, you know, picking up their kids and coaching soccer and you know, going to work or, you know, running PTA or whatever it is, they really have to, it's an illness, you know, and their brain has become to some extent diseased. And the the way to treat that is to abstain, at least at the beginning. And that is a huge stressor on the system. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And
0: I know in my first week I felt overly sensitive, like I was walking around without my outer layer of skin, Um, even rageful and I am absolutely not a rageful person, but I was just like, so angry. And I mean, it was, it was crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're really getting at the way that our, you know, brains push us to drink again, you know, and the way those gremlins jump up and down really hard on the pain side of the balance, you know, to, to drive, uh, you know, to drive us to use again, not to mention that just purely from a psychological construct, it feels like taking away a best friend, right? Depriving ourselves or that one thing that we could do for ourselves, especially, um, I think, you know, at the risk of sounding sexist, so many women are in caretaker roles. And so alcohol can sometimes, and this is for men too, um, you know, sometimes when people aren't, they, they're they not good at getting their own needs met um, or vocalizing their needs or standing up for themselves. And then alcohol becomes the way that they meet their needs and stand mm-hmm. up for themselves and take care of themselves. So for all those reasons, it's also really hard to let it go. Yeah. And I
0: found for myself and a lot of women I work with that it actually really took off after I had kids. So before I had kids, I went to yoga, I went to Pilates, I took guitar lessons, I did all these things in addition to work. And then I had to go to work and pick up my son at daycare and, you know, get him food, take care of him, play with him, you know, Legos, get him to bed. And I could do all that while having wine. Like it was like multitasking. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to mention that there's this whole, you know, um, Mommy drinking culture yeah. that's been promoted by the industry that very much normalizes that yes. you know, that kind of consumption and is uh, you know unfortunate.
0: Well, let's talk about that because in the book you talk about how one of the biggest risk factors for getting addicted to any drug is easy access to it, and you know just in my own life alcohol is literally everywhere. And anything, you know, literally, most drinkers surround themselves with other drinkers. And, you know, there was alcohol and is at first birthday parties at the I take my daughter to little kickers soccer skills, and they serve wine and beer for the parents in the, you know, two year old, four year old, seven year old, Soccer practice during their 50-minute lessons. I mean, it literally is attached to every event.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, this is really, you know, why the book is called Dopamine Nation. We are living in this really um unprecedented time of universal access to all kinds of addictive drugs and behaviors. And it, you know, if alcohol is not the drug that tips your pleasure pain balance to the side of pleasure. Trust me, there's something else out there, um, you know, coming along soon that you will encounter, which is why I think that in many ways, people in recovery from addiction are really modern day prophets for the rest of us, because if they can figure out how to navigate this dopamine saturated world, then the rest of us can too.
0: And do you, I've heard from different people that the balance is changing. Like the heaviest drinkers are baby boomers and Gen X, which I'm Gen X. Um, and somehow millennials or Gen Z or whatever aren't drinking as much. Maybe they're like getting their hits on social media or something else. Like, what have you seen there?
1: Yeah, and so the what the data show is that um rates of alcohol use and alcohol addiction are going up um, in the United States and in many other countries all over the world. Um, the the rates are going up highest in women. And in older people. So, alcohol addiction has increased 50% in women in the past couple of decades and 85% in older people. The reason that's interesting is because those are demographics that were previously thought um, relatively protected for a variety of reasons from alcohol addiction and no longer are. Um, In fact, millennials. Um, show some of the highest rates of alcohol addiction among women. Oh, so no. contrary to what you've oh, been no. hearing, yeah, millennials, yes. I yeah, had hoped for the younger generation. Yeah, no, no, there are more women. I think, you know, the, the, the data show that the, the rates of alcohol addiction in women have been climbing again for several generations. And, and that, that climb has been the steepest among college age, um, uh-huh. you know, and a little bit older. So mainly millennials, um with especially with dangerous drinking patterns, binge drinking patterns. It's also true though that the norm today is polypharmacy. So very seldom do people who are you know, using alcohol in an addictive way just use alcohol. They're often using, you know cannabis in various forms. They're using psychedelics. They're using nicotine products. They're using you know um, stimulants. So um, it's really it's really normative now to see polypharmacy. But even in the context of polypharmacy, people usually have their drug of choice, the thing that they like best or turn to most. Yeah.
0: And that, that again, goes back to just the supply, easy access, it being everywhere. Um, Because
1: we haven't changed our, you know, our brain, our primitive brains haven't changed. What's changed is the ecosystem and access is probably the uh, biggest contributor to the increasing rates and increasing risk of addiction in the modern world. Yeah, and I I can only assume that during the
0: pandemic, drinking and heavy drinking just increased because, you know, in terms of availability and time and sort of freedom to drink, everybody was home, right? So I used to not start drinking till 6 p.m. when I walked in the door. You know, once you're at home 24-7, that barrier has been removed. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I wanna invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, The Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30 day challenge or a one day at a time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy you'll look better and feel better you'll have more patience and less anxiety and with my approach you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process so if you're interested in learning more about all the details please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com you can start at any time and i would love to see you in the course
1: Exactly. And not only are you right next to your refrigerator, so potentially right next to it, but you have nobody looking over your shoulder, you're in your pajamas, and you don't have to be at work early the next morning, right? You can be at work late the next morning, again, in your pajamas. Um, so we, ha- we have seen an increase in alcohol consumption, just based on um, sales reports during uh, during quarantine and during the pandemic. And we've also seen an increase in treatment seeking for um, substance use disorders during that time. Some of that is good. So it's not all that people are getting more addicted. There's some element of people, some people having more time to actually address their health problems. So I've seen patients actually get into recovery during quarantine and the pandemic. So this has been a, a relatively healthier time. Um, with less time spent commuting, more time for themselves and for wellness, but certainly um, plenty of patients for whom quarantine and COVID has been really, really hard.
0: Yeah. Some people say sort of this social pressure to drink or the drinking occasions, if they decide to do what you call dopamine fasting, if they decide to stop drinking, it's easier, right? Because you're not being invited to happy hours or necessarily book clubs as often when the wine is flowing. Um, a lot of people didn't go out to eat for a very long time. And so that was easier as well. You know, you go to a restaurant, the very first thing they ask you is what you want to drink and bring you the, you know, beer and wine and cocktail menu before they even bring you food menu. So right, right. I, it, it's been both.
1: Um, right. Exactly. Agreed
0: you have a whole big section on what you call self binding, what I, when I was reading it, um, thought of as my years and years of attempting to moderate, you know, in terms of both physical barriers between, you know, you and your beverage of choice, um, putting rules in about when you're going to drink, like, I'm only going to drink when I'm out, or I'm only going to drink when I'm home, or I'll never drink before 6pm. But tell us about that concept. Of self-binding?
1: Yeah. So self-binding is the idea that our willpower is limited and it lasts about a day. And we have more willpower when we wake up in the morning than we do before we go to sleep. But even the best willpower is not going to be able to overcome the physiologic drive to restore homeostasis or to challenge those gremlins on the pain side of the balance. So in order to be able to, you know, abstain, if that's our goal, um, or moderate, if that's our goal, we really have to put barriers in place before we have the desire to use. And those barriers take many different forms. I divide them broadly into space, time, and meaning. Space just means geographic space, you know, for example, not having alcohol in the house. Um, Again, whether your goal is abstinence or moderation, just not having it easily at hand, or I will have patients who travel a lot who will call the hotel in advance and ask them to remove the minibar. Simple things like that, steps you can take to make sure um, that it's harder for you to get get to the alcohol. Um, Time is exactly what you talked about. This is really more for folks who are attempting to moderate, trying to restrict it to certain days of the week, certain amounts. Um, you know, certain milestone achievements, I'm only going to drink after I finish all my work or whatever it is. Um, Again, I think you point out well that moderation doesn't work for everybody. And in fact, there's the real danger of what's called the abstinence violation syndrome that people are able to abstain. But then when they do go back to trying to drink in moderation, in fact, they slip immediately back into even heavier use than prior to abstaining. And that that is a really good indicator that moderation is not an option for that individual. That they're somebody who probably will need to um, abstain for the long haul. And then meaning is just a way of categorizing um, our substances. So, for example, when it comes to alcohol, some people are able to moderate by just sticking to beer and not use not you know not drinking um, hard liquor or wine or some their favorite wine or. Something like that. So they kind of mitigate the reinforcing effects. I will also add that we now have medications that can function as self binding strategies. For example, something like naltrexone literally blocks the opioid receptor. Alcohol works on the endogenous opioid system by releasing opioid in our brains, which then in turn releases dopamine. So by blocking the opioid receptor, what naltrexone does is decrease the rewarding feelings we get. From alcohol, which for a lot of people really helps them either not drink at all or drink less when they do drink, there are other GABA and glutamate modulators out there that people can use, and even a medication called disulfiram, which acts as a deterrent. Which if people take that, they'll get violent, and they drink, they'll get violently ill. So these Is are that anabuse. Yep, that's anabuse. commonly
0: known as anabuse. Yeah. Now, Trexone and anabuse are two I hear often as. If you're having trouble moderating or stopping, is a suggestion to talk to your doctor about them. What do you think of both of those?
1: I think they're great tools. They're nudges. Okay, they're not, they're not cures. Um, along with the other behavioral interventions, um, they can be really helpful. The nice thing about naltrexone is that it's useful for people for whom it works. So these are also. They're very idiosyncratic. They're not going to work. Some people, they're great. And some people, they don't do anything at all. But for, for people for whom they work, now, Trexone is nice because it can help not just with abstinence, but also with people for whom the goal is moderation. Um, and abuse is is really effective. And um, obviously, is just for an abstinence goal. You can't moderate it because you get sick if you drink on it. But it's what patients tell me about anabuse is that it basically takes the decision off the table. They only yeah. have to decide once a day to stop drinking. Um, they don't have to keep deciding all day long, which I thought was a great way to kind of describe it. You know, you take your anabuse in the morning, it's like, done, can't drink. Yeah. And that interestingly takes away cravings for people because once they know they can't drink, they kind of stop thinking about drinking. Yeah. There are also yeah. other medicines out there that are not necessarily FDA approved but can be used off-label um, to help people curb you know, the urges to, to drink in particular. Topiramate is one that I like. It also has a side effect of weight loss, so that can be nice. And none of these agents are in and of themselves addictive or habit-forming, which is really important. What was that last one you mentioned? I hadn't heard about that. Topiramate or Topamax can, can be helpful off-label, for okay. people who are trying to stop or
0: decrease drinking. And is that similar to naltrexone or it doesn't, it sounds like it doesn't make you sick if you drink.
1: Nope. It, yeah. It doesn't make you sick. Um, it works by a different mechanism altogether. Um, it works on the GABA and glutamate systems. It's actually an anti-seizure medicine, but people report that it, it changes the appetitive desire uh, to drink. And mm-hmm. also the appetitive desire for carbohydrates, which is why it's sometimes used off-label for Label for binge eating. Okay.
0: That's really, really interesting. And, you know, when you talked about self binding and the rules, and um, I don't know a single woman who goes for a longer time period without alcohol. And most of the women I work with have been trying to moderate often for years, right? Mm-hmm. And just have figured, you know, made all the rules because we none of us want to give up our drug of choice. So I know I did all the things and, and that might work for some people. It didn't for me. I mean, I was like, I'm only going to drink two drinks. I switched the beer because red wine was like my jam. I did the water in between each one. I actually switched from a bottle of wine to box wine. That was a bad call, but my idea was (laughs) (laughs) not, not a good idea. And it's crap wide, but it was like, Oh, well, if I don't, see the bottle and that there's only a quarter left. I could just have, yeah, that was bad. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, people are out there doing the research, you know, collecting the data. I mean, at some point, um, you know, what I say to patients, if they're just keep moderating and there's not working, I said, you know, you really may be somebody who's just better off abstaining. And if you try abstaining for six months and kind of then do an honest accounting of how that was, you might just decide it was worth it. I mean, one of the things that is really an important reframe is when we take away our drug of choice, it feels like we're depriving ourselves, but really we're not. We're giving ourselves a huge gift, but it's a delayed gift. It's not something we're going to reap the benefits of right away. It's going to come later in subtle and many intangible forms. Well,
0: you're giving yourself uh, the gift of not going through that withdrawal constantly and having your yes. dopamine reset. And just, yeah. you said, tr- being able to experience pleasure in your daily life and not yeah. waking up with that constant anxiety.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. And being able to take real joy in things that are not related to drinking. Yeah. And those are Those are huge gifts. And you don't um, yeah. get the hangovers and feeling right. like
0: garbage yeah. and stomach being yeah, upset yeah. and weight gain and all the other things.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's lots of lots of things to be gained. Um, but it's it's just hard to remember that in the moment when, you know, when you're having cravings or you're feeling bad and yeah. you. Yeah.
0: Well, know, let's talk about social media, because I know. You know, phones are literally everywhere. Um, yeah. I have to say my husband and I were talking about this book last night. We have a seven-year-old daughter who is like on YouTube constantly, you know, yeah. in, after school and sports. And like, she like literally like flaps her arm and like,'s, like, look at all those dopamine hits. Like that's like <laughs> second by second. And yeah. obviously it's not just her. We're on our phones all the time. So it's hard to abstain from social media,
1: right? It's really hard, but I would argue that it's really addictive. It's really a drug. And we have to collectively and individually start to conceptualize it as such, which doesn't mean we're going to get rid of it or even that we should get rid of it. And hopefully most of us will be able to figure out how to coexist with it and consume it in, you know, in moderation, but we won't be able to do that. I don't believe until we openly acknowledge that it really is a drug and that it releases dopamine and it causes you know it it drops us right into this compulsive loop where we feel good when we're doing it and then the moment we stop our pleasure pain balance tips to the side of pain and we're mentally preoccupied with wanting to reach for it again feeling restless anxious like we're missing something for parents i really do recommend that you do not give your child their own device until, you know, age 13 or 14. And that prior to that, them having their own device, you closely monitor and regulate the time that they have on screens because it is a drug. And you don't want to get your kid into this loop of that being the only rewarding and reinforcing thing that that they do. Now, your daughter sounds like she swims and does other things, but even so, if she is and and every kid is different. Some kids, you know, can kind of take it or leave it, the, the screens. Most kids not. So you really want to explain to your kid, you know, this is basically like eating a bag of potato chips or a great big piece of chocolate cake. We can do that at birthday parties. And maybe, you know, after we've done our homework and eaten our vegetables, you know, we can have a little slice of cake, but it's not something that, you know, you can be doing before those things or even every day, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a special treat for a special occasion. And if we do it too much, we will get sick. Yeah. And I see that like, again, with the pandemic and
0: quarantine, you know, it, in terms of that time block, self-binding really went off the rails because I was working all day and she was home, right? School only takes so long. That was on a screen too. And so the balance got really out of whack, as opposed to now where, you know, school all day, soccer three times a week, You where, you know, we eat dinner, there's bedtime, you know, I'm, I believe I absolutely need to get better and do better than I'm doing right now. But like, thank God, I'm not trying to monitor it and handle it, you know, for multiple hours a day.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you and millions of parents across the globe yeah. are very grateful that kids are back in school and that they have, again, ac- activities that you know, don't don't involve being on a screen at home. I mean, it's just, it's been really, really hard, I think. But it's for adults
0: too, right? You talk yeah. about the alerts that go off. Like when a text comes in, I get a ding when an email comes in, obviously Facebook likes or Instagram. Um you know, we get that dopamine hit too and go through that high or low if like you don't get any interaction or likes or, you know, how does that work?
1: Well, that's, again, the dopaminergic system, the pleasure pain balance. So what happens when we get an an alert, we're just like one of Pavlov's dogs. Pavlov, uh, you know, he realized that his dogs, the dogs would salivate when presented with a slab of meat. Um, and they eagerly ate it. And then he trained them to know that if they heard a bell um, and then would, that the meat would follow a few minutes later, they would salivate just when they heard the bell. They didn't even have to wait for the meat and they were already salivating. And then subsequently neuroscientists could show in mice with a similar kind of paradigm that when the light went off, So they stuck a probe in the rat's brains, rats and mice in their brains to measure actual dopamine levels. And our dopamine is always firing at a constant low level. And then when we ingest a reward, it goes way up, right? And addictive substances have even more dopamine than things that are not particularly addictive. But what happens if you condition the brain to know that a reward is coming, like like through an alert that causes a little mini dopamine spike that isn't as big as what we get with the reward itself, but it's still a mini reward. But here's the interesting piece right after that mini reward that comes with the trigger or the alert or the light or the sound, the brain compensates by going not just to baseline dopamine levels, but actually below baseline dopamine levels. So again, we have the balance tipped to the side of pain. We're in a little Mini deficit state. And then that's what drives the motivation to go get the drug. So that's exactly what's happening when we're online. We're working, we're being productive, getting something done. And then an alert goes off and we see, oh, I got a text. Immediately we get a little release of dopamine, followed by a little dopamine deficit state. And then we're craving. We're mentally preoccupied, restless, anxious. It can take many different forms. Oh, I'm missing something. Oh, was that my kid? Oh, was that my boss? Oh, did I win the lottery? You know, whether your brain skews it positive or negative, it's all kinds of thoughts that are driven by this dopamine deficit state that basically get us to stop what we were good doing, which was working productively, and go check that text. And this loop can be repeated and is repeated for many of us hundreds of times in a single day, which is why turning off your alerts is really, really important. The other thing I really recommend for people who are in the public sphere, like, you know, like you and, and myself, and and you know doing doing these kinds of um you know shows that we believe in in order to pass on messages is that we actually don't look at likes and don't i never watch my interviews so yeah. good, you know because i don't want it to be about me i want it to be about the ideas mm-hmm. and about helping people and the moment it becomes about me then you know i also become vulnerable to this kind of vicious cycle of sort of narcissistic dopamine yeah um, which I don't want to do. So, you know, um, making your phone grayscale, so it's less appealing, turning off your alerts, um, not paying attention to likes or comments or anything like that. You know, I mean, in moderation, obviously there maybe are some venues where it makes sense to do that. Uh, But these are the types of things that, you know, we need to think about so that we reduce really the potency and the addictiveness of, our interactions online. And I had to do that
0: even with news, like after the election and during the run up to the election, I was getting news alerts from New York Times and NPR and CNN just popping up on my phone. And it was just, I could feel it like spiking my dopamine, lighting up my brain. And I went to turning them all off and just consuming news like, first thing in the morning and in the evening, and even reading it, not watching any cable news coverage, because it was so, you know, I didn't need to follow the ups and downs of every intricacy, small thing that happened. And I was like, okay, I just need to learn what the digested impact without the drama was, because it was making me really unhappy.
1: Yeah, I think you've really described it well. The the medium really matters. And the medium in which we get a lot of our news online has made the news a drug. Um, And where we're constantly getting getting bombarded by, you know, oh, this happened, that happened, you know, in these little sort of sensational snippets that release dopamine in our reward pathway, our dopamine is about novelty. It's not just about reward and motivation. It's about newness, about novelty, about, you know, what do I need to pay attention to? And so we can easily get caught in that loop. And the antidote is, as you realized, to get your news in a less sensational format, a different medium, long-form journalism or long-form podcasts, something that's slow news, you know, that's not going to you know, click you into this kind of craving state. Yeah,
0: not the clickbait headlines right, kind right. of thing. And you talk about the different levels of dopamine. So dopamine measures the addictive potential of the substance, more dopamine, how fast it is, the more addictive the drug. So you talked about chocolate increases dopamine above baseline 50%, sex is 100%, nicotine is 150 Amphetamines is about a thousand. What about alcohol? What level is that in terms of the spectrum of of the addictive potential of the substance?
1: So those series of experiments were were not done with alcohol. Oh, okay. It, it's interesting. Alcohol. Some rats, it's very difficult to get them addicted to alcohol. Other rats um, that are genetically predisposed and bred for that will get addicted to alcohol. Alcohol is also interesting because it primarily works on the brain's endogenous opioid system. So we make our own opioids, um, and alcohol triggers that system along with the endogenous GABA system. GABA is a calming neurotransmitter. Um, And and ultimately, the final common pathway of, of alcohol is dopamine, but it's not as easily quantified because of the relatively indirect method by which it gets there.
0: So it's in there somewhere, but not with a specific percentage of
1: that, how, that's right. How addictive it yeah, is It's definitely in there. It's definitely in there, but in that particular experiment, it, it wasn't one of the substances that was that was looked at. Okay.
0: Awesome. Well so if any woman's listening to this and thinking about their own consumption of whether it's alcohol or prescription drugs or social media or anything What advice do you have for them?
1: I advise a 30-day dopamine fast where we eliminate our drug of choice for 30 days, knowing that we'll feel worse in the first two weeks. But if we can make it to weeks three and four, we'll reap the benefits not only of a dopaminergic system that has returned to homeostasis, um, but we'll also be able to see with more clarity the true impact of our drug choices and i use drugs very broadly to include any reinforcing substance or behavior we'll be able to see the impact of our choices on our lives which is very hard to do when we're in it and when we're chasing that dopamine feeling in the book i talk about my own addiction to romance novels which you know can sound sort of trivial and silly but i really did you know get somewhat addicted to that and i I, I I was startled when I did a dopamine fast, how hard it was to give up my nightly consumption, which is something that had just become a really ingrained behavior. And I experienced a lot of withdrawal that felt very physical, especially with insomnia. Um, but, but by the time I got to 30 days, I, I I felt better. And I was also really able to see, wow, I really had become addicted. So it can be revelatory in that way. And then um, I recommend deciding, okay, do, I want, do you want to continue to abstain or do you want to go back to using in moderation? And if you do go back to using in moderation, um, make sure that you create self-binding strategies and especially that you're honest with yourself and others about what you're actually using or doing, because um, it can be really easy to slip into you know, telling lies, to, mostly to ourselves. Yeah. Our behavior.
0: Yeah. I know I did that. I stopped drinking for a year really four months, and then I got pregnant with my daughter, and then decided after she was born that it was sort of situational that I could handle it now that my life was less stressful. And, you know, the idea of I'm going to have a couple glasses of wine on a date night with my husband. And very quickly, I was back to, oh, I'm gonna have wine in the house. Oh, I'm gonna have wine every night. And then, you know, basically a bottle of wine or more, a night, it took me 22 months to get sort of the day I finally quit drinking. um, After thinking that I was going to moderate and trying for that entire time.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's such a classic story. And, you know, for me too, after a month of not, not reading, you know, erotica, I binged for a weekend and then I realized, wow, I I really have a problem. So I gave it up for an entire year, but it, 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 and then now I don't, I don't read it because it doesn't do anything for me anymore. That's one of the hardest things about (laughs) neuroadaptation is our drugs stop working for us, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, I have to say I watched Bridgerton and then a friend of mine had a book signing with the author, which is super cool. She lives in the Seattle area and then I read all books in the eight series and then I read the four prequel books. And <laughs> anyway, so I hear you on yeah, yeah, you know, how it yeah. It can yeah and it's going. not that
1: we it's not that we're not allowed to have any indulgences. you know, we can have those indulgences, but there are certain ones that we the ones that really fit our particular lock and key, uh, you yeah. know we just kind of need to avoid. and the other ones we need to do in in moderation. The other thing too that I recommend in my book and I have all chapter dedicated to it, is that the best way to get your dopamine is actually indirectly by doing painful things um, by pressing on the pain side of the balance. In small to moderate doses, we get the gremlins hopping on the pleasure side of our balance, which is, um, you know, what's called hormesis. Hormesis is Greek for set into motion. And by introducing painful and or noxious stimuli like exercise or ice cold water baths, or making ourselves do things that make us anxious, what we do is we stress our system in the opposite direction and get our own production of opioid serotonin, dopamine, Oh, that's um, why exercise works. Yeah, exactly. Exercise itself is noxious to cells, but what this, the body does as a healing response is starts to generate more opioids and more dopamine and more serotonin so that you end up getting dopamine indirectly, which is the right way to get it because it's- Is that why they harder. call it like the runner's high kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. Oh,
0: that's, that's, that's interesting. And I don't think it was painful, but um, I used to, when I was playing guitar, just get so overcome with emotion and happiness and, yeah. you know, just emotions that I did well, that's not a great.
1: That is actually a great example of what fits into this painful category. It's not that playing guitar is painful, but it's effortful, right? It's mm-hmm. effortful. It's not an easy, quick fix. It's not, a, it's not, you know, a stimulus that immediately releases dopamine. It's kind of secondary gain because you had to probably practice enough to get to a point where, you know, you felt good doing it. So it's, it's the kinds of effortful engagement in our lives slowly over time, leading to delayed rewards, which is the best source of dopamine. Yeah. That's great. Bad. We need dopamine. We need it, but we have to get it the right, the right way.
0: Yeah. Not in that intravenous hit constantly. That's
1: right. Yep. Not the big bolus all at once. Yeah.
0: Well, I really appreciate you coming on this show. I love your book. Like I said, I had Audible book and then I was like, okay, I need the hardcover so I can underline and dog ear it. And it's because you really, you do use these metaphors to explain what I've experienced, what I see people experience in scientific terms, but very, very relatable terms and actionable terms in, in terms of like, oh, now I get it why I felt that way and why this works and why that doesn't work. So thank you so much for that.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: Hey there, before I jump off this episode, I want to remind you that you can sign up for my brand new 60 minute masterclass, five secrets to successfully take a break from drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past by going to hello hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. Now, this training will not be around forever. So if you're interested in figuring out what you've been doing up until now and why it hasn't been working and exactly what to do instead, I encourage you to take a few moments, sign up, pick a time that works for you, And actually attend the session. I'll teach you how to shift your thinking so you can get out of the really shitty cycle of starting and stopping and starting again. And it's okay if you're thinking that you don't actually want to stop drinking. I promise you, if you attend this class, you will change the way you're approaching this process. So save your spot. Go to Hello someday coaching.com forward slash class. And I can't wait to see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit Coaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.